Well, you can represent the um, newbie position perspective then. Yep. That's my default job on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's my job. Believe me. Yeah. Au contraire, mon frère. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Don't panic, be paid for most of this podcast is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of WebStorm. Whether you're working with Node.js or building the front end of your web application, WebStorm is the tool for you. It has great code quality and code exploration tools and works with HTML5, Node, TypeScript, CoffeeScript, Harmony, Less, SAS, Jade, JSLint, JSHint, and the Google Closure Compiler. Check it out at jetbrains.com slash webstorm. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 72 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have Jameson Dance. Hello. Joe Eames. Hey there. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about screencasting and kind of uh, sharing what you know through that kind of a visual medium. Before we get going, I'm, I'm wondering, how much of this have you guys done? None. <laughs> uh, I've done a fair amount. I've got my three courses with Pluralsight that I've done. That's pretty much all the screencasting that I've done was through Pluralsight, but, so, but I'd say I've definitely done a fair amount, several hundred, maybe a thousand hours worth of screencasting. Nice. Uh, when you say a thousand hours, do you mean a thousand hours of recorded video or a thousand no. hours of time put into it? Yeah, a thousand hours of time actually spent. So I probably produced like 10 or 15 hours of recorded video, probably about that much. And 600, five, 600 hours of time spent producing that much video right well, around there. Well, there you go. If you've read Outliers, you know you have like 9,000 hours to go, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Then I'll be an expert. That's right. Um, I've done a fair bit of screencasting as well. In fact, I got into podcasting through screencasting, and uh, I ran teachmetocode.com for a few years. Um, I'm actually looking at reviving it, but uh, it's just some time that I haven't been able to commit yet. So, But yeah, it's it's definitely a fun and interesting thing to do, to share share what you know and, and kind of get the word out about whatever technologies you're passionate about. Yeah, definitely. Why did you get into it, Chuck? Well, so... Uh, what was it, 2007, I think? Eric Berry, who's a local programmer, um, started this website called teachmetocode.com, and he was putting up videos primarily focused on Ruby. And um, he reached out to a whole bunch of people that he knew in the local community, and we all put together some videos for him. So my first screencast was on uh, routing in Ruby on Rails. And uh, then um, I started podcasting, and... Eric got into Groovy on Grails. And so he actually turned teachmetocode.com over to me, and I produced videos for it for another year and a half. Um, and then life just got crazy, and I kind of stopped doing it. I pod faded, so to speak, on that. But uh, um, I mean, there are a couple, of, there are a bunch of series in there that are kind of fun, like uh, building a Twitter clone in Ruby on Rails and things like that, that was extremely popular back in the day. And, uh, I mean, now it's, most of the technology is, is old, you know, it was on rails two, I think, and now we're on rails four. So 
you know, you, but anyway, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, Eric did the Twitter clone. I did a bunch of other stuff, you know, either demo, demoing technology or building applications. And what I'm looking at doing right now to bring it back is actually to start just basically here, we're going to build a website that does this. And so something like a URL shortener or a tw- another Twitter clone or something like that. So that people can kind of get into that again. Very cool. How about you, Joe? How did you wind up getting into screencasting? I met uh, one of the main guys over at Pluralsight at a user group meeting, and I told him, hey, you guys need courses on this and this and this. And he said, well, why don't you come build them? And I said, well, all right. That was pretty much it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of an inauspicious beginning. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm really glad that I, I ran in there and he invited me to do some screencasting for him because I've really begun to enjoy it. You know, I, I really like teaching and sharing what I know. And uh, it's, a, it's a much wider reach. You know, I can go and do a talk, um, at, like work for 20 people or at a user group for 30 people or at a conference for 100 people. But I can publish a course and reach thousands of people. Yeah. And, and the learning comparison in... Um, video screencasting versus a conference, and I, I enjoy conferences tons. But it's you, you can't at a conference pause and rewind if you miss something, right? You can ask a question maybe, but if you're in the back of the room, that could be a problem. Yeah, the other thing is is that the conference talks tend to be more about sharing an idea right. as opposed to the videos. It's actually sharing a technique or you know explaining how to use a particular library. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as opposed to something like this podcast where it's all audio, um, again, it's really hard to show somebody how to do something or, you know, explain. You, you can't really read code over the air and have people really get it. So that that's where that's another place where these videos really come in is that people can see what you're typing. They can they can see the tools you're using. They can watch and kind of get an idea of, of the workflow. And in the end, you can actually demo what you built. Right. So how does this relate to JavaScript? We're talking about screencasts, but we've got an angle on this podcast, right? So why are we talking about it on JavaScript Jabber specifically? I'd like to take the first stab at that one. I, I, made, a, you know, I made a switch from being a full-stack, more back-end developer to being a front-end developer. And part of the reason that I did that was because the front-end and JavaScript, I mean, this is where... Not not just the, exactly the front end because Node is part of this, but JavaScript is really one of the most exciting places right now in technology. So much innovation is happening. So many new libraries are getting published. So many people are solving big problems. And there's so many opportunities to solve these big problems. But one of the big, big issues that we face is sharing that knowledge, right? How difficult is it when you go to use somebody's new library and they've haven't had time to really put together a nice documentation site. And maybe, maybe they, you know, and this is probably more the exception than the rule, but they actually did write a little blog post about, all right, here's how to build something basic with, you know, utilize my library or something basic. And that's nice. But with video, you can get such a better idea of how to use something. If you watch them go through soup to nuts and, and put something together, like, I don't know if either of you guys have been to egghead IO to look at angular videos, but, and those are such great videos. They're short little two, five-minute videos where he just shows how to do one little tiny thing. But so many people have benefited from those videos. So, And I think in JavaScript, it, 
it's such a it's it's a burden on us that we should take this responsibility to share that knowledge with other people that we pick up about when it, whether we're authoring a new library or we just figured something out. It's so easy to do a quick little screencast, post it up to YouTube, and make it searchable. Somebody else can come in and find a solution to the same problem, and it's so much more effective than a blog post. You, you don't have to have, you don't have to worry about your grammar and punctuation. You just have to be able to speak clearly enough that people can understand you. Yeah, I just want to add on to that. Um, when I got into to Ruby and Rails, I mean, I had somebody sitting by me helping me out. But uh, eventually I found things like uh, the Rails Envy podcast, which was an audio show, but they were talking about Rails news. And then there was another one called Railscasts by Ryan Bates. And uh, he put out a video every week on, and it was a video on some aspect of using Ruby on Rails or using some library that is connected to Ruby on Rails. Um, You know, a lot of these you know, very similar, you know, I've been looking at Angular and Ember. And so finding videos on here's how you do this with Angular, here's how you do this with Ember, you know, NS screencast for learning how to do iPhone development by uh, Ben Sherman. Um, it, it really helps bring people into the community. It helps show them how to solve problems that they run into as they're coding. And, uh, it, it really just adds to the overall community effect and feel as well as, you know, helps those people who are making the transition, uh, come and contribute to our communities. It, it's, it's a huge, huge thing. So, uh, I, I, I totally agree with what Joe is saying and just, you know, um, bringing new people in, getting people to use the right tool for the right job. I mean, there are a lot of payoffs for this. And, and yeah, most of it's community focused, but ultimately it makes our code better. So I know that Ryan Florence's Embercast, they've been a good resource for me when learning Ember, um, just because it's, it's a large idea to get your head around. So it, at least for me, it's harder for me to learn that just by reading docs and, and trying stuff out. It's easy, a lot easier if you have someone that's found the happy path and found out how things work for you. Uh, so that was a good resource. You mentioned egghead.io, right? Is that, that's the place for Angular screencasts? Yep. Have you guys come across other um, good resources for JavaScript screencasts? For JavaScript screencasts? I know Pluralsight has a few, or not Pluralsight, well, they do too, but uh, PeepCode has a few. Yeah, I know PeepCode has a few, and then I think there was a, um, wasn't Tim running one for a while that did Node screencasts? I'm not sure. I know he did blog posts, howtonode.com, but I don't know if there were screencasts on there or not. Yeah, I thought I thought there were. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Nothing obvious comes to mind, which I think is kind of sad other than YouTube, and then you kind of sort through the big pile at YouTube. There's some great ones in there and some not-so-great ones in there. Yeah. Um, how do you think screencasts compare? So you mentioned conference talks not reaching as wide a variety as people of people or as wide a number of people. But it seems like more and more conference talks are being recorded, right? So how do you compare a screencast against a recorded conference talk? Do you still prefer the screencast for learning? I do, but it, it kind of depends. I think that Charles had it right there with, uh, you know, a screen, uh, a conference talk is more like an idea. And in that 45 minutes to an hour, they probably cover very little code. And a recording of a conference talk often isn't a capture of what they're putting up on their on the uh, display board, it's a capture of them walking around and talking. And so the code, you might have a harder time seeing it. And most likely they're, they realize that even though they've got this 45 minutes, they can't show nearly as much code. So the code that they show is really what you'd probably show in 
10 or 15 minutes of a screencast. So I would say, you know, in comparison to the two, I prefer a screencast to a recorded conference talk. If it comes down to, I need to learn how to do something very specific. But when it comes to ideas, I mean, I watch lots of recording, recordings of uh, conference talks because there's lots of great information in them, but it's more about the ideas of how to do something or somebody talking about their opinions on doing something a certain way that you get that I really appreciate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just to add on to that, I mean, most of the time, and I'm going to give some more concrete examples uh, to this. So I've watched conference talks on things like functional programming in JavaScript or in Ruby. Um, and, uh, Basically, they, they just start talking about the, you know, the payoffs, the, the different trade-offs that you make using functional programming versus object-oriented programming, um, you know, stuff like that. And so you kind of get these ideas around or concepts around different aspects of programming from the conference talks. Most conference talks aren't a heads-down heavy um, demonstration of how to write the code that gets the job done. And that's where the screencasts really shine. So the screencast, it's, you know, um, I'm using this functional programming technique in order to solve this problem, and then we're going to go in and we're going to do these couple of other things because they make the problem a little bit easier. And in the end, look, we have a widget that does X, Y, and Z. And, uh, and, and that's, that's the difference. So one is very high level and one's very low level, but, uh, you know, they both pay off in different ways depending on what you need. So if you need somebody to show you how to solve the problem, then you're going to go to a screencast. If you want to kind of expand your mind and find new ideas for how to approach different, uh, aspects or areas of programming, that's where the conference talks are. Right. What do you, what do you think, Merrick? Or, sorry, Jameson? Merrick is not with us today. No, I can't replace Merrick, dude. I haven't said dude nearly enough times in this podcast. Dude. Or bro. I love you, Merrick. Um, <laughs> what was the question? Um, what, do you, what is your preference for learning screencasts versus watching recorded uh, conference talks? I, I feel like I'm biased towards impractical, crazy things, so I like conference talks more. Um, just Because I agree with Chuck that conference talks are more like gee whiz, this is so crazy. And a screencast is like, here's this thing that will help you in your job. <laughs> so screencasts might be more useful in the short term, but I like conference talks. I probably watch a lot more conference talks than straight up screencasts. I feel like I learn things from them that I wouldn't be able to learn through experience or through reading on my own. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. What about when you're like trying to get something specific? Do you prefer searching for a blog post or a screencast? Still blog post, man. You could you could just do Control F, right, and then find the problem that you're looking for. Whereas if it's an hour long screencast, then you just sit through an hour long screencast. Yeah. I don't know. That's that might just point. be my ADD. It's <laughs> a good point that an hour long screencast is a bit much. Yeah, that's definitely true. However, if the screencast is, you know, 10 minutes and it's focused on you know, solving whatever problem it is that I actually have, then I definitely prefer that because I can actually see the screen. I can see the code. I can, um, you know, I, you get more, I think it's a higher bandwidth uh, communication because you get the, the way that the author is speaking about something, um, the, or the presenter, I guess, whatever you want to call him. I'm going to call him the author just so that I can keep the, uh, terminology the straight. But yeah, but, uh, you know, so you get to hear what they're saying. You get to see what they're doing. A lot of times they're using a lot of the same tools that I'm using. And if not, then, you know, I kind of get that out of it as well. But, uh, yeah, I mean, 
a 10 minute video isn't a big deal for me to go watch to figure out how to do something. And I can pause it and I can rewind it and everything like Joe said. The blog posts, a lot of times, I, I don't know, I just don't feel like they really give me as much of a guided tour because if my path deviates from the video, um, then I can go back and rewatch it and see what I did wrong. And with the blog posts, a lot of times, um, they just give you kind of the highlights or the basic points. And so you may deviate because you've, they, they, they omitted something. I think it's easier to omit something in the blog post as opposed to the video. Cause in the video, you are recording it real time. Yeah. Yeah. Quite true. You know, I kind of, unless you're doing like stop motion screencast with claymation and stuff. <laughs> That'd be sweet. I would love to do that. That would be awesome. So That'd be pretty um, cool. I've, I've got a nephew that'd be amazing that. So maybe we'll make a new startup. There we go. I, but, I kind of uh, agree with what you're saying with, uh, uh, Jameson about like control F there's definitely times when I feel like, all right, I just need a quick example of what was, you know, what was this one little thing in which case a, a screencast can be really inconvenient. Yeah. Right? I need to find just this one example, but when it comes to, uh, I just don't know enough about this. I need to learn this better in depth Then I definitely go for a screencast. Yeah. And it, it, I think it also comes down to the way that you learn. So, if you're a visual watch somebody else do it learner as opposed to read it and, you know, understand it that way, you know, you, you may be better off even going to a book. Yeah. Well, let's say for, take, for example, that I wanted to learn uh, Sinatra, right? Uh-huh. Not a Ruby guy, not a Rails guy, um, but I wanted to learn Sinatra. I would definitely go for a screencast. But if I'm, like, building a really complex directive at Angular and... I'm looking for a quick, like, I for, I got my transclusion wrong, something screwed up on it, and I want to, to refer to some examples of how people transcluded. I'd probably prefer a blog post. And then I can scan through them quickly and be like, okay, 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 all right, no, that doesn't have the information I want, and go to the next one. Whereas watching a screencast about transclusion probably wouldn't uh, help me out. Yep. So I, I kind of want to change gears here for a minute and talk about recording screencasts as opposed to watching them and what the payoffs are. What what tools do you use to record your screencasts, Joe? I use Camtasia. Are you on Windows or Mac? Because I really um, have both. Yeah, I'm on Windows when I do most of my recording. I haven't done any recording on my Mac, but I might need to start doing some recording on a Mac, so I, I might be picking it up for the Mac. Awesome. I, I use uh, ScreenFlow, and that is Mac only. So, but it's it's a pretty handy tool, and I've I have used Camtasia in the past. Um, for the most part, the basic features you're going to use for either one are the same. You record, you edit. Um, they they have basic effects in them, stuff like that. So, the, and they're both they're both excellent tools. So let's say that you just wanted to do just a little tiny bit of screencasting, right? I don't know. Is ScreenFlow a paid project? Yes, it is. I don't remember how much it is. I think it's like I think it's a hundred bucks. Yeah. That's not terrible, but still, unless you plan on making that money back somehow, but if you just want to contribute to the community, that might be a bit much to bite off. What are the alternatives um, for somebody who wants to just contribute to the community but um, doesn't want to drop 100 bucks on a tool? So there are a few free ones out there that you can use. Um, yeah, it's $100 for ScreenFlow. I'm trying to remember what some of the other paid options are, but QuickTime will actually record your screen, and that comes on the Mac, and it's free. It it doesn't have all the nice little editing and other features in it. So the reason I use ScreenFlow is because I wind up substituting the, the audio because I record the audio on the same equipment that I record the podcasts on. And then I put it in there and it sounds a lot better. 
But yeah, you can use QuickTime. There's also Jing, J-I-N-G, um, dot com. And that's a little, it, it'll record a short screencast and then it'll put it up on screencast.com. I don't know if you can actually get the original file for it though and do anything else with it, but you can embed it off of, uh, uh, the screencast uh, website and and that's all made by the same folks that make screenflow I think maybe, maybe it's by the same no I think it's by the same folks that make Camtasia that's but, the one where you have to sign up for an account right it's free yes. but yes yeah. it's free but you have to get an account and there are limitations to how long it can be um, on Gene interesting uh, there are a few others out there I know that there are free ones for uh, Windows as well but I can't think of what they are off the top of my head uh, but yeah, I've also used, um, I'm trying to remember what it was for Mac, but there was another one that was big for a while that, uh, ScreenFlow eventually won out. Do you just do all your editing in these tools? I know ScreenFlow, I'm sure Camtasia as well provides editing yes. stuff. Yes, they do. And that, that's what I do. I don't know if that's what you do, Joe. Yeah, I, yeah, I do my editing in Camtasia. Like, um, you know, the screen recording isn't really, the most important part of Camtasia is the editing, right? Or of choosing a, a screen recorder, it's the editing tools that are the really important part. So uh, there's a lot of things that will capture the video. And yeah, maybe you might be particular about, oh, I want to be able to turn my mouse on and off. But the majority of what you're going to do in screen capturing, the video recording options are far less important than having good editing options. But that's if you're doing something long, right? If you're going to do something short, I want to sh- record like two minutes of showing how to do something. I think the, at that point, the editing probably doesn't matter. You probably just would rather retake if you um, screwed something up and not even bother editing if you're just going to do two minutes of video, you know? Yeah. I'm always recording big, long things, you know? I'm trying to string together three, five hours of, of video, so I need to do a lot of editing, and I have a big, long plan of how pieces fit together. But if I wanted to um, just take something little that I was doing and Rather than writing a blog post on it, do a little screen, a little video, a little um, screencast on it. Then it would be a lot easier to do something where I didn't have to worry about editing tools. I just grabbed one of the free screen recorders out there, sat down, recorded, and then when I was done, posted up to YouTube, and that's you know just like a blog post, right? Yep. Yeah, Gene does that. I don't know if you, again, I, I I don't remember all the limitations to that, but that that's usually what I use Gene for is the one minute, hey, this is the bug I'm seeing. <laughs> Go check it out over here. Right. And I really wish that more people would do that, you know, that these use these free uh, screen capture tools and just put something together for a minute or two rather than writing a blog, writing a blog post all the time. Because if you want to show, like, oh, here's how I solve one little problem or do one little thing and you just code through it, that's, that's really beneficial. And there's just not enough videos out there like that. Yeah. So do you talk over yourself while you're doing the thing that you're demonstrating on the screencast, or do you record completely separately and then do a voiceover later? I feel like I've seen it both ways, and it seems like it takes a lot of skill to be able to do what you're talking about and talk about it at the same time, but some people can pull it off. I don't know. What do you do, Joe? Um, I record um, afterwards. So what I what I actually do is I'll, using the editing software... I'll record my typing, then I'll stop and talk for a minute, and then I'll record, then I'll do more typing, and then using the editing, I cut out the typing or shorten it up, speed it up, something like that. And that way, it, there's a lot of different reasons for that. One of which is if I screw up when I, what I'm saying, 
then when I need to re-record that, I just I'm recording against a still image that's not changing. So it makes the editing a ton easier. But that's a lot more important when you're doing a big long screencast. If you're doing a short screencast, then just pausing while you type, just because it's and for me, I, I I'm also with uh, what Jameson said, there's certain people that can talk and type at the same time, and I'm not really great at that. Much better at doing one thing at a time. I'm, I guess my, my I can't uh, even talk and talk at the same time. So <laughs> adding another thing onto it, it makes it rough. Yeah, I'm single core, so it's either talking or typing, but not both. So that's kind of funny because I'm definitely the other way. So I will type and talk at the same time. Um, I have tried dubbing afterward. Um, and it just, it just doesn't work for me. The timing always feels wrong. And, uh, rather than doing that, you know, I'd rather just stop and explain something if I don't have anything to type until I'm on to the next topic. Um, yeah, I'll just stop and explain, um, rather than actually, you know, record all the typing and all the programming and then go back and explain what I did. Um, it just, I, I feel like I'm rushed at some points and I'm, you know, I've got this huge gap where I'm just typing and not really explaining what's going on. And so I'd rather just talk through it. And uh, it, it tends to work pretty well for me. But that being said, I mean, I have gone back and touched things up and, and recorded small segments after the fact and redubbed them in. But typically, for the most part, if you're watching a, a screencast that I've made, I am talking while I'm working. So you don't have any problem talking while you're actually typing. Like I kind of do the same thing, but I do not talk and type at the same time. I have no problem talking and doing just about anything else at the same time. I talk a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> No argument here. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, all kidding aside, I mean, it, it really is much easier for me just to explain it while I'm doing it. And then the, the timing just works itself out, and it it sounds good. And sometimes I do go in and I'll kind of – especially if it's more of a, a professional thing. Now on my own screencast, typically I don't do this, but for a screencast, um, I'm, I'm actually in talks with Pluralsight right now to become one of their authors. I would go in and I would clean it up a lot of the ums, ahs, uhs, you know, that are in there and uh, just make it so that it's more uh, continuous and feels a little bit more professional. Yeah, it makes sense. And uh, one other thing I want to jump in and, and talk about real quick is the, the audio quality on your video. So the video quality has to be good enough for people to tell what you're doing. Uh, I found that uh, with most videos, if the audio quality is really poor, then people won't watch the video. Even if the, the video quality is high and the content is what they want, if the audio quality is poor, then they will find another video. Yeah, I totally agree. The difference between... A really terrible video and a really great video is not what's going on in the video. It's the audio. Yep. It's the quality I've, audio. And I've seen that play out over and over and over and over again. The good news is Macs seem to have a great microphone. The MacBook Pros, they seem to have a really great microphone that's included with them. So if you just are in a quiet enough room when you're recording, then I think those are actually really good. Yeah, if you're going to be recording kind of professional quality, though, I still recommend that you go get a professional quality microphone. And you can get away with, you know, a 50 or a $100 microphone. You don't have to go out and get a three or $400 microphone. I, I know that Pluralsight and Lynda.com, for example, they, they approached me about a video and then decided that they, anyway, they, they were talking about money issues and, you know, open source and stuff, and they just weren't willing to commit to it. 
but uh, both both of those companies require you to go buy a decent microphone and and usually a, at least a mid to high end microphone. Yeah, um, the Blue Snowball. That's a great microphone. That was my first microphone, and I picked that up for like sixty bucks, fifty bucks. Yep, the Blue Yeti, which is a little bit more. I think it's closer to a hundred dollars. Is also a good option. Um, if you want to go more along the lines of a traditional microphone with an XLR plug, if you're not sure, uh, if you don't know what an XLR plug, it's the kinds that you see for like regular PA systems with the three prongs in the back. You can go get one of those. There's a Shure SM58, which is an excellent microphone, and uh, it, it's just a handy little dynamic microphone, and it'll cost you like 50 bucks as well. But then you have to find a way to either convert it to USB or uh, get a mixer for it. But as far as USB mics go, the blue mics are awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And then if you want to go higher end, then you can get like the RE20 or the high PR40. But uh, you don't necessarily need to do that unless you're going to be doing a, a whole lot of screencasting or podcasting and you just want that extra rich sound that they give you. So one other thing that I have people ask me sometimes is, do, do you need the high-end um, editing software? like? Uh, Adobe Premiere Pro, or um, what is it for the Mac? It's Final Cut, Final Cut Pro. And uh, I have to say, I I, I have both. <laughs> I've paid for both, and I never use them. Uh, Premiere also does, like, um, effects. And that's pretty much all I've used it for. Uh, the same with Motion, which is it, the, the counterpart for the effects with Final Cut. And basically what I do is I go to... Um, it's videohive.net, I think. I'm going to give away some of my picks here. So they have uh, After Effects project files and, and uh, Apple Motion graphics files. And so if you need like a, an introduction um, effect, so for example, on Rails Ramp Up, which is my Ruby on Rails course, each of those videos begins with an effect that kind of fades in the, the logo. And if you want an introduction like that, uh, those intros cost anywhere up to about $20. And you, then you just plug them into Motion or After Effects, and uh, you put your vi- your uh, image in there, and then you just tell it to render it, and it does all the rest of the work. So you can kind of get a professional intro, outro, if you're looking for something like that on these videos. Now, with if you're doing something for Pluralsight and and those guys, um, they they do a lot of that stuff for you. So you just you just format it the way they want, and then they do the rest of the work. But uh, that that's a really awesome tip that I've used in the past as well. Cool. So I got a question for Jameson. Yes, sir. Have you ever thought about doing screencasting? You ever considered doing a screencast for something rather than, I mean, you blog, right? Very intermittently. Have you ever thought of screencasting? I've thought about it. I think I have the free version of ScreenFlow sitting around in my hard drive somewhere. I just have never done it. Probably for the same reason that I don't write very many blog posts. I just have lots of ideas and then I start them and then I throw it away. So yeah, maybe this podcast will be the inspiration though to start. That'd be cool. If more people start doing screencasts, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was talking to a coworker the other day who's brilliant, but he's a little young and he, he thinks that he's not that smart. And I think he has this perception that he has to be old and, and famous to give conference talks. And I was trying to tell him that he has tons to offer to people right now. It seems like the same thing with screencasts, right? You don't have to be a famous expert in your field, although that helps. 
but there are people that could benefit from stuff that you already know about JavaScript. Yeah, a lot of the introductory stuff that you know you know after doing JavaScript for a few months, that's still stuff that other people are going to want to learn if they're picking up JavaScript. And everyone's an expert at something, right? You, your application has specific things that you have to learn. I mean, maybe you do a lot of low-level DOM manipulation, or maybe you do tons of crazy asynchronous stuff, right? There's something that you know that other people do not know that they could benefit from. Oh, absolutely. And another nice thing about just doing a little short screencast here or there with a really focused topic and throwing it on YouTube is it's a lot easier for people to find an answer to a problem through your screencast that way. Right. Sure. Yeah. I've so I've thought about doing screencasts as well to prepare for conference talks a little more. Usually, I just practice by myself, or I'll give a presentation at a users group or at my company or something. But it seems like that could be a good way to do a lot more focused preparation on your topic. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I might I might try that for an upcoming talk. We'll see. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth trying at least. And you can see, oh, I rushed this. I need to, you know, explain this a little bit better because you can play it back. Sure. <laughs> if if only you could have like your sweet intro in your conference talk, right? Like you zoom in and dissolve into into appearance, like your logo <laughs> on your screencast or something. Yeah, you can do that. That'd you can sweet. embed you can embed videos into Keynote. Well, or, or I mean, PowerPoint. I was talking about literally in real life, like oh. You slide in from the top like your logo slides in from the top or something. Oh, that would be cool, yeah. That'd be pulling a fan man, I guess. <laughs> It'd be awesome, though. Yeah. So when you're preparing for your screencast, Joe, you you actually write out an outline, and uh, do you actually practice it a few times, or do you just write the outline and then go for it? How, how, do, you, how do you approach that? Well, for a plural site course, right, it's going to be three or four hours of topic, and so... I do a lot of preparation there, outlining, breaking things down into modules and, and um, organizing the content. So there's a lot of that kind of prep. But when it comes to like, all right, I'm filming one clip and the clip is going to be two or three or four minutes long and I know what is going to go into the clip. So I already have the content sort of laid out and now it's just how am I going to present that content? I might write a script. I might not. If I don't write a script, I at least make notes about what I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't know that I will necessarily practice, but I'm, I do a lot of, I stop, I get ready, I know the topic that I want to talk about for the next, oh, 10 to 30 seconds, and I have in my mind what, what I'm going to say, then I hit re- record and I talk for that 10 to 30 seconds. And if I screw it up, I just stop and start over again. If I didn't screw it up, then that's great. I, and then I'll pause and then get ready for the next 30-second bit and do that and do that over and over again until I got the four the two to four minutes that I'm going to have for my clip. Yeah, that's, that makes that's sense. I, I tend to just outline it. I, I will never write a script. Again, I just don't feel, I don't feel like I can uh, express myself well by reading a script. And I feel like I'm trying to fake the inflections and things of what I'm trying to say. But uh, yeah, other than that, I pretty much do what you do. I'll just work through the outline. Um, sometimes I'll type out code samples. I have two screens on my machine, so a lot of times I'll have the code that I'm writing up on the left and the code that I am recording myself writing up on the right. <laughs> right. And so um, I'll, I'll admit that I have cheated, so to speak, on some of my screencasts. But the nice thing is, is that I can just boil it down to the essential parts of what I'm doing. 
The the other thing that I do want to point out, though, is sometimes I do just go and cowboy code the, the video, and I'll make mistakes, and I will leave them in if I think they're valuable. And what I mean by that is if it's if it's an easy or common mistake to make, then I'll leave it in. If it's a, a typo or something, then a lot of times I'm, I'll back up and re-record it, but... Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really a big fan of doing scripts, but I certainly can say that I found myself a bunch of times going back and when I was editing, discovering that I used the wrong word for something like three times. Mm-hmm. And not like an old mistake, but something that you only make because you're, I'm right in the middle of focusing on the coding that I'm doing and the t- things that I'm talking about, and I just mixed up words. And so sometimes the script really helps out with stuff like that. Um, and it, of course, when you're throwing, just throwing something together to post up on YouTube, the mistakes are not that big of a deal. Leave the mistakes in, right? Yep. If you're trying to do something more professional, you, you may want to put new the mistakes out or like what I'll do is I'll just note, Hey, it's really common to make a mistake here and do this, right? But leaving the mistake, I don't normally leave the mistakes in for professional stuff because the expectations are a bit higher. Yep. You could borrow my no bugs driven development methodology for the screencast. So just just don't make mistakes. And <laughs> there that's you go. Fine. Very nice. Thank you. Yep, that's Jameson, the embodiment of perfection. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> so one other question I have for you, uh, Joe, is when you're recording your screencasts, uh, screencasts I've seen usually straddle the gap between something like demonstrating how to write the code and actually presenting concepts regarding the code. So in that sense, they kind of go more toward the conference talk area, but you're, you're kind of setting the stage so that you can actually write the code. Right. Do, do you typically do that with some kind of PowerPoint or keynote presentation? Or do you just uh, explain it as you go? Or is there another approach that I haven't thought of? Um, I do the PowerPoint type thing. I like to use diagrams. And I'm a very visual person myself. So I like diagrams to explain concepts. And so I'll use PowerPoints and colored blocks and move them around on the page and explain how pieces fit or at least outline, you know, bullet points all right, there's this, this, and these are the options. And then I'll go into the coding and then I'll go back to the PowerPoint. Yeah, I tend to do that too. And I do it on my secondary screen so that when I'm switching between programs, I hit Command-Tab on my Mac. I think it's Control-Tab on the on Windows uh, to switch between you know the most recent programs you're running. Then it shows the, the switching window that comes up on the Mac. It shows it on the, the primary screen. And since I'm recording the secondary screen, it's just a seamless transition from the slideshow back to my editor. Right. And then um, the other thing that I, I like to point out is make sure that your fonts are large for videos. And the reason is, is even if you're recording it, you're going to release it in like uh, 720p or 1080p uh, high definition. Most people aren't going to watch it in that. They're going to watch it on their phone. They're going to watch it on YouTube where it's like 600 by 400. And it you're going to need uh, a higher resolution font. You're going to need a higher uh, or a larger font so that they can read it on those smaller uh, Windows screens or devices. And so I always I always right. blow it way up so that people can see it. Yeah, I like to just record at like 800 by 600. And that way I know that from a small device to a big device, they can see and not try to scram, you know, cram too much content into uh, the screen. 
that way. I'm, it, it limits me from trying to put too much onto the screen. Yeah, that makes sense. It depends on whether or not I've promised somebody that they'll have high definition or not. But yeah, I've done that too. And um, ScreenFlow, and I'm pretty sure Camtasia does this too, when you uh, export your video to its final you know, .mov, .mp4, .wmv, um, you can tell it to export it to that smaller size as well. So it'll scale it down. Right. Have you put closed captioning on any of your videos? Uh, Pluralsight does that for us. Okay. So I don't know. I haven't done. I haven't been involved with that process at all. That all happens after me. Yeah, I know that uh, ScreenFlow will allow you to put um, closed captioning on your video. Um, I'm just trying to think if there are any other aspects of this that we should talk about. Do you ever do a video of you talking to the camera as part of your screencast? Um, I don't, but I think that I'm uh, not the kind of person that people want to see a video of. So <laughs> I did that. It seems th- like it could be incredibly cheesy if done wrong. I, yeah, I, I did that where it was, you know, the kind of the picture in picture on some of the teach me to code videos. And some people liked it and some people hated it. I eventually stopped because it is such a pain to move that picture around when you move the cursor into where that picture is. Right. And so I just got tired of dealing with it. Um, the only time that I've actually done the, the face-to-face video is if I'm doing some kind of introduction. Hi, it's me. I'm doing this class. You want to see my face. You know I'm a real person kind of thing. Or in a, a marketing video for the same reasons, you know. They they look at it and they're like, oh, okay, it's a, it, he's a guy. He, he exists, you know, kind of thing. You kind of get that personal connection because you've seen their face. But uh, generally, I don't do that either. I'll put a picture into the slides at the beginning or end or something. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think there's certain personalities for which that works. Like, I'm thinking of Day9, who does the screencasting for StarCraft. Uh-huh. And he's just got the right kind of personality. So he, you see his picture all the time, uh, or at least a lot. And he's just got a good personality for that. But um, for a lot of people, they just don't have a personality that you can interrupt be really engaging while interacting with essentially nobody. It's just hard to do. Yeah, it is really hard to do. A lot of times I'll include other content with my videos because some people want it. So I'll have things like cheat sheets. Other content? Oh, I thought you were going to say just like my favorite song in the background playing. There you go. (laughs) No, so I'll put out like cheat sheets and things that people can download. So it's, hey, go here and do this. Um, I've also been using... uh, a product, and I, I may have picked it on the show before, called Wistia. And um, they actually allow you to do things like embed, uh, like an email sign-up or something in the video, so people can enter their email address and sign up for your mailing list and things like that. And that's also an interesting thing that you can do if you're embedding this on your own website. Right, you know, but I don't think that, even though Jameson joked about it, like, let's say that you did want to write a blog post but thought about doing a screencast and said but weren't necessarily comfortable doing a lot of talking well then just screencast writing the code describe what you're doing and then throw some music in the background yep I mean on a little like 30 second to 2 minute video I'd be totally okay watching that if you know the code was actually something I was looking for and solved a problem that I needed yeah and then just yeah I, I would put a little short introduction before it though that says um, this video just shows me writing the code and the explanation follows. 
Yeah, exactly. Seems like it'd be really surreal if you didn't have that. It'd just be like some guy coding in his bedroom while <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, like plays in the background and stuff. Yeah, kind of gets creepy. No, I was thinking like you described the topic really well in the notes in your YouTube videos, so that people could find and know exactly what you're going to do in the video. And then in the video, you just code it up. You don't need to talk. You know, I'm mm-hmm. that you could throw the music in just so that it's not like dead space, but. Yeah, the, I don't think that even talking is nearly is, is absolutely required for a decent screencast. If you're doing a short topic about a, something very focused that you can describe in a few sentences at the beginning of the screencast. Yeah, the, the other thing is, is having the text, uh, whether it's a transcript of your show or just an explanation um, that that's also really helpful for people who are hard of hearing so they can see it. They might have trouble completely hearing or understanding what you're saying, but they can go and read about it afterward. Right. And it helps with your SEO, among other things as well. So there there are several reasons to do that. Exactly. All right. Well, I think we're pretty close to done. So unless there's anything else you can think of to bring up, let's go ahead and do the picks. Nothing comes to mind. All right. Jameson, what are your picks? I have two picks. My first pick is this require bin little example. It's just a dozen, few dozen lines of JavaScript that shows how someone is... I think it's playing the Final Fantasy theme, one of the Final Fantasy themes in your web browser with JavaScript and the Web Audio API and stuff. It's cool. Um, and Require Bin is a cool tool as well. It It's kind of like one of these JS Bin things, but it uses Browserify, so you can uh, pull in node modules and, and stuff like that. Um, and my other pick is just the International 3. So it's this annual tournament that Valve throws for their, their game Dota 2. I think the prize pool was $2.8 million this year. Wow. Um, and it's like a week long. It's it's the finest event in esports. Just incredible production values, really good um, really good games. I actually got a bunch of people in the office to watch it that aren't Dota fans, so that was fun. It, it felt like being someone that cares about football. It was a unique <laughs> experience for me. Do you wear a jersey? No, I don't. I don't wear a jersey, but oh man, the finals was the best of five series and it just came down to the wire and everyone was just like hunched around the TV cheering and stuff. I didn't really have that experience growing up, so I understand people that love sports a lot more now. Um, So the International 3, that's my other pick. Nice. Joe, what are your picks? All right, so I got three picks. Uh, I just came back from that conference and and, uh, that actually is the name. It's called that conference. And I've picked it before. Uh, I want to pick it now that I've actually gone and say that it was a really great conference. It was pretty regional, and it was just a wide variety of topics, like 10 tracks. They had topics on everything, and they had uh, a track for kids and family where they were teaching kids how to program their Legos, and um, it was really cool. It was very well done, very well put on, and it was an absolute steal, uh, and I had a really great time at the venue that they chose. So I'd like to pick that. I also want to pick a book called Serafina. Uh, it came out last year, I think. And I saw the bookstore and it just had a cool cover. So I picked it up and read a little bit of it. And then uh, I just got completely engaged. It's kind of a long book, but I've been zipping through it, really enjoying it. It's kind of a um, sort of a Harry Potter type of novel. But I've really enjoyed it. Fantastically written. Great, great, great book. And then for my last pick, I'm going to once again pick NGConf. 
The reason I'm picking it is because uh, it won't be too much longer before tickets are going to start going on sale. And it looks like we're going to be turning people away. So just want to make sure that if anybody really wants to go to an Angular conference, that you pay attention because I don't think there's, I think the tickets are going to go quick based on the amount of interest that is getting generated um, for ng-conf because there's just only so many spots that we've got. So I'm going to pick ng-conf, and that's www.ng-conf.org. Awesome. All right, I'm going to do a couple of picks here. Um, The first one is Video Hive. I mentioned it before. That's where I've gotten the intros and stuff for my videos. It's awesome. Um, I've I've really been happy with what I've gotten from it. Um, They also own a bunch of other stuff like uh, themeforest.com where you can get HTML layouts and stuff with like nice designs because I, I I never invent those well my on my own. The other pick that I have is more related to business. I hired a bookkeeper to fix my books for last year and she fixed them so good that I knew the numbers were not right. And so um, I went in to try and see what was going on. Um, she was using QuickBooks and Oh my, oh my mess. Um, QuickBooks is impossible to figure out. And so, um, I went and tried lessaccounting.com, which is a bookkeeping software for like sane people. And it is super easy to use. It, it made things really easy to kind of see where everything goes. And so, uh, I'm definitely going to be picking lessaccounting.com. And those are my picks. Sweet. So, yeah. Um, when does the call for proposals open up for ng-conf? Or are you just filling it from people who come to you and say, I want to talk? Um, it'll be opened up pretty quick. Okay. We've only, we've only got like, we've, we're only going to have a couple of spots to fill, so it's going to be pretty tight on the call for speakers, but that'll be opening up soon. Okay, sounds good. All right, well, um, we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week.